G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. As a Christian, you know, you expect that we will face all kinds of trials. After all, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, our special guest today is an expert in how we face trials and failure. He's walked a very hard road, but has discovered that in even the lowest moments, we can find strength and courage to persevere. Warwick Fairfax was the heir of one of Australia's most significant companies, John Fairfax Limited, a diversified media company that at its height included newspapers, television stations, radio stations, magazines and newsprint mills. On taking the helm back in August 1987, Warwick Fairfax launched a $2.25 billion takeover to privatise the publicly listed company. By December that year, the company was $1.5 billion in debt. The debt was so large that when Australia went through recession just a couple of years later in 1990, the company went bankrupt and passed out of Fairfax family control. Today, Warwick Fairfax leads crucible leadership from his headquarters in the United States. He's become a best-selling author who helps people turn business and personal failures into fuel for igniting a life of significance. It is our absolute privilege to be able to welcome along to 2020 today, Warwick Fairfax. Warwick, welcome to 2020. Well, thanks, Neil. Uh, Very much looking forward to being here. Warwick, take us back to that really uh, must be a nightmare time for you. It was a 150-year-old family business. There was a rise in the company's stock price. Corporate raiders were lurking, and you sought to preserve the Fairfax family control of the company. Well, that was the idea, at least so it seemed to me. I mean, I was fresh back from Harvard Business School. I did my undergraduate degree at Oxford, like my dad and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street. And yeah, uh, in early 87, as I was finishing my last year at Harvard Business School, my dad, who was in his 80s, died in early 1987. Uh, Yeah, about half the company was held by the family. So the stock price was rocketing up, so the market believed it was in play, uh, given my dad had died. And I, in my youthful naivety, felt like the uh, company was a bit, or the newspapers were a bit sensational, and I felt like management, uh, you know, uh, could have been doing a better job. So, again, in my youthful crusader naivety, I thought something needs to be done. And so I felt like, you know, I needed to launch a takeover, and $2.25 billion, as you say, and late August 87, and uh, yeah, it went from there. Just looking back, it's uh, there's a lot of questions about why I did it and you know, was what I did necessary, but that was my thinking at the time in 87. 
We'll come back to what was going on around that time and how you were dealing with it, but let's talk about the Fairfax Company for a few moments because your great-grandfather, John Fairfax, and your own father, Sir Warwick Fairfax, were men of authenticity and faith. They were men of God, and uh, they were running the media empire that was affecting the growth of Australia as a nation. How do you reflect on those years? Well, yes. I mean, you're right, Neil. I mean, it was started by my great-great-grandfather um, coming out from uh, from England. Uh, I mean, he was a man of great faith. He, wa- he wasn't just Victorian uh, piety. <clears throat> in his 20s, when he was working in a paper in London, he wrote, you know, he wrote these words. He said, I do humbly hope that there is one spark of divine grace and love, even in my poor, cold, and hard heart. But it is my earnest prayer that that spark may be fanned into a pure flame of unquenchable love to the great and ever-blessed Redeemer. Um, I mean, it was, he says later, uh, that if I ever lived and died without Christ, I should be miserable to all eternity. So he was a very strong believer. He was an elder at... um, the Pitt Street Congregational Church in Sydney, which is, still stands. Uh, he was a great father, uh, husband, employees loved him. Um, he was uh, just a, a great man of God. <coughs> His son, James Redding Fairfax, <coughs> excuse me, was also a person of very strong faith. And there was this just legacy of strong evangelical faith in the, in the family, which I guess got a little bit more traditional as the decades as the you know decades wore on over the 150 years um but uh, there was yeah it's always been this legacy of faith uh, in the company at one time the sydney morning herald was the third largest distribution in the british empire uh, so very significant the way that your great grandfather's values will have influenced the editorial and the the sorts of things that people were reading about developing Australia. That's pretty significant. It is, and uh, readers might remember at least, uh, you know, Sydney ones back in the day. When I was growing up at Christmas and Easter, they always had a Christian editorial. And I would always read these, and I was, I don't know where they got them, probably from some, local evangelical minister, but this wasn't the normal Easter editorial. I mean, it really talked about coming to Christ, about what the meaning of Easter really is. And I guess newspapers love tradition, so I don't know if it still happens now, but certainly when I was growing up, it was just, that's what they did. It was really remarkable for a a paper that you could compare to New York Times or the Times in London, or you just don't see that in editorials, at least certainly not you know, any time, not, not around Christmas or Easter. So quite a remarkable legacy. Warwick, revisionists are trying to write out of Australian history the Christian influence. I imagine that when you uh, think about that and when you know your own family history so well, uh, it's impossible to think that Australia was not a Christian nation in those early decades uh, and right through and even to uh, the more recent present. Any thoughts on uh, how revisionists do try to twist things and that your own family history actually demonstrates a Christian foundation for Australian history? Yeah, I mean, I try and obviously respect everybody's... uh path, but I think you, know, you have to honor uh, each person's legacy and um, let them speak for themselves. And yeah, I mean, there's no question, you know, you look at his faith, one of his best friends, 
from the same church was David Jones, who you know founded a huge retail chain in Australia and also a person of faith. So um, you know that's two big institutions uh, in Australia, which is um, you know which is sort of quite uh, quite remarkable. Um, I mean, here's you know, another thing just to show you the legacy of um, of John Fairfax on his fiftieth birthday, which back in the eighteen hundreds was you know pretty old. Um, his kids gave him this beautiful silver centerpiece, which we have in the family. And, you know, he was always thinking of faith. Even then, he said, you know, we're all traveling on. Time is ever on the wing. Some of you have decided for Christ and a fellow pilgrims to Zion. All of you are hopeful. But I beseech you, suffer nothing to stand in the way of an early surrender of the springtime of your existence to him who is both able and willing to save. You can't look at that and say there's anything other than somebody who is full on for Christ. I mean, I don't know how you could pass that any other way, but the words speak for themselves. So, yeah, you have to honor his legacy. Full on for Christ and how that uh, translates into the way the colony was being influenced. Uh, I've got a bit of a quote or two here uh, that uh, John and Charlie, his brother, motivated by their Christian beliefs, they committed to set an example in partnership for all Sydney to learn from, no crosswords or bitter thoughts. They would do their utmost for the improvement and glory of the colony, fight hard for those things which should be brought about, and when wrong, admit it. Uh, any reflection, Warwick, on uh, the way that media today, and uh, perhaps all its forms, uh, whether in Australia or where you are in the US, uh, media has moved away from those sorts of values? Well, we live in challenging times. We have that legacy of uh, John Fairfax and his business partner, Charles Kemp, was amazing. In fact, the original masthead of the City Morning Herald, when they bought it, is pretty instructive. It was, may Whigs call me Tory and Tory call me Whig, which in modern language is, may liberals call me conservative, conservative call me liberal. They always wanted to be independent. Uh, there was no, you know, doing deals for mates the way some media organizations would do. It was, you know, have an upright organization. But we live in an era where I'd say media is becoming increasingly polarized around the world. You have your left wing and your right wing papers. And I think people justify um, in the news columns editorializing, say, well, so-and-so uh, leader uh, is so beyond the pale that it doesn't warrant fair journalism. Uh, you know, it's our duty to editorialize in the news columns, which to me, you know, that's for the editorial, uh, whether you agree or disagree with the prime minister or president, just report the facts. Say one side said this, the other side said that, and let the readers decide. So I think increasingly we have a, a trend to polarize journalism, uh, you know, and you, so readers will just pick the, the paper or the, you know, uh, look online at whatever publication, uh, you know, they agree with, which I don't think is that healthy to have such polarized journalism. Warwick, let's come back to your story for a few moments and we'll get into uh, how the company uh, was lost uh, back in 1990. But your own faith story here, because this is really powerful for what you do right now in the present. I wonder if you can take us into some of those details of your own faith journey. Yeah, absolutely, Neil. So, you know, I grew up, as, you know, in Sydney and the Anglican Church, which is you know, pretty evangelical uh, in that particular diocese. But, you know, we didn't go to church that often, Christmas, Easter maybe. Um, 
had an older sister, Annalisa, who, you know, uh, came to faith in, in school, and uh, she would give me, you know, Bibles at Christmas or what have you. But it was when I was at Oxford, uh, I had a, a friend invite me to a local evangelical Anglican church. It's an old dates. And um, when I went there, it was just different than anything I'd ever experienced. It was a student church. Um, you know, the gospel was preached. And uh, so I was invited to go to this um, uh, retreat, Anglican retreat on the Devon coast in, uh, in England for Oxford and Cambridge students. And there I heard, you know, uh, this is 1982, late March 82, I heard Christian choruses, people give testimonies, um, you know, talking about the gospel. And I knew at that point that I needed to commit, you know, I needed needed, uh, a lot of help with the pressure that was to come upon me. And so I asked one of the people there, you know, for a you know, I didn't have a modern copy of the Bible, which is a bit of a dead giveaway that maybe I wasn't with the program. So, uh, I, you know, I was explaining what the gospel was and, you know, need to repent for our sins and accept Christ into our lives. And so I did then and, um, you know, changed the course of my life. Uh, you know, I certainly made a lot of mistakes, but my faith in, in Jesus Christ has been the animating force of my life uh, ever since. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, as we speak, it's, gosh, late March 82. We're getting pretty close to, I don't know, what is that, 40 years or something? That's, uh, that's a pretty big anniversary when you think about it. But, yeah, that, that, that time in England, that church, it changed my life. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest is Warwick Fairfax, who leads Crucible Leadership from his headquarters in the United States. We're talking about a very significant loss of the family empire. Uh, Warwick, I wonder, as you reflect on these things, uh, the the business, uh, the thought that you would lose the family empire, I wonder if you can take us into the expectations that would have been riding on your shoulders at that time. Yeah, I mean, when the company went under in 1990, uh, yeah, it was a, a very difficult time. Uh, I remember when it was happening, we had the three major TV networks on my doorstep, you know, nine, 10, and seven network. I had editorial cartoons done on me. It was, um, there was a time where I could walk in a mall and people would go, I eat Warwick Fairfax. I mean, it was actually pretty recognizable back then. So, um, yeah, when, uh, you know, I had my naive crusader mentality why I wanted to do the takeover, but when it didn't work out, too much debt. Australia got in a recession in uh, late 1990, and we had to file for bankruptcy. Uh, those next years, my wife's American, who I met in Australia, we moved back to the to the U.S. Uh, it was just soul crushing. I felt like I let my parents down, family members down. You know, four thousand plus employees. Uh, while they didn't all lose their jobs, there was uncertainty. They felt that the sense of safety with the Fairfax family, who was going to earn us now, was sort of their thought. But, you know, for listeners, especially at this station, it might be interesting, the, the most soul-crushing thing was I felt like I'd let God down. For any person of faith to feel like you've let God down, to me, that's sort of the ultimate crucible, the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, crisis of faith, if you will. Because in my naivety, I felt like, the company was founded by a strong believer. When I came to Christ, I felt like, well, it must be, you know, God's plan to have another believer at the helm. And so the thought that I'd let God down, I was just, 
absolutely devastating. The, the money, yeah, I mean, we, we were okay. I mean, in theory, I'd probably lost billions, but money has never been important to me. I'd still listen. I'm com very comfortable, but what, the loss of money was sort of meaningless to me, to be honest. It just, it's not something I've ever mattered to me, but letting people down and God and my family, that was the thing that was just crushing to me. I mean, my self-esteem was shattered. It was, in the 90s were very difficult times for me. You felt the company was not being run in accordance with your family's values and ideals. So the thought of reprivatizing the company was about saving the values of the company. Yeah, I mean, you know, bad things can happen when you, you I think my motives were good, but um, yeah, I felt like the, the journalism was becoming a bit more sensationalism, sensationalist and the way the company was managed, I had issues with, um, you know, whether that's fair or not, it's a whole nother matter, but that, that was kind of my, you know, crusader mentality. It wasn't like we needed to have, you know, Jesus lives in every, you know, news article, uh, but more how people were treated and respected. And, you know, one could debate whether my analysis is really fair, but that, that was sort of the, that was the reason going in. Warwick, do you think back on that very uh, time filled with great <clears throat> turmoil? That uh, Do you have any regrets? Do you think, if only I hadn't, uh, regret uh, launching the failed takeover? Yeah, I mean, a, a few, quite a few. Um, you know, I don't know if my analysis is right or wrong, but my biggest regret is something that, you know, listeners may not, you know, realise I felt like I was living somebody else's life. I mean, I respect my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, immensely. And his vision to have a, a paper and a, eventually a, a paper newspaper company to uphold the values of Australia and you know, the young colony as then was, and that was a great vision. I respect it. But you can't inherit a vision. That wasn't my vision. I mean, my dad would have been a better philosophy professor, frankly, than a business guy, because that really wasn't him. I'm more of a reflective advisor. I don't like managing lots of people. I don't make, like making lots of decisions quickly. So my biggest regret was I was doing this duty on a country thing, as they say in the U.S. military. It wasn't about, well, what do I want to do? It was an irrelevant question. So I was living somebody else's life for me. That was, that was by far the biggest mistake that I made. Uh, obviously, the turmoil that I caused within the family and employees, obviously, I regret all that. But yeah, trying to live somebody else's life, somebody else's dream, that, that was my biggest single mistake, I'd say. The linchpin of your current leadership role, uh, your cruci crucible leadership brand, is that setbacks and failures aren't the end of our stories. Because I know in that decade after the loss of the company, uh, the bankruptcy, uh, things were very, very difficult for you. But how did you begin to learn that this was not the end, that all things were not hopeless, and that there was a, a, a new future, a new uh, something to be learned from the failure? You know, I think for me, when I went through that, you know, uh, challenging times, it can either draw you away from Christ or, uh, you know, pull you towards him. And for me, it just pulled me even deeper in my faith. And so I realized Despite my naivety and mistakes, if God had wanted it to happen, it would have happened. But in his sovereign will, he had a better plan for me. Uh, you know, I think of, I think around Genesis 50, the story of Joseph, 
obviously, you know, as everybody knows, his brothers you know, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. And there's a line that said, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, here it was really more my own mistakes, but, um, you know, just that sense that God loves me unconditionally, he doesn't need my stuff, uh, was, was, was huge. I mean, several scriptures, I think, really were, uh, were huge for me. I mean, one, I think in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have lost all things. So to me, there's nothing more valuable than faith in Christ. Everything else is meaningless. Uh, so I just sort of lent, lent into my faith. I mean, that was the foundation of it. I'm grateful to have a, you know, a wife. We've been married over 30 years. As I mentioned, she's American. We met in Australia. Uh, she's also a strong faith and has loved me unconditionally, having three kids who are now 30 and, and in their late 20s. Just that that sense of unconditional love, um, finding work I can do that's meaningful. But really the crux of how I came back in terms of my self-worth is that you know God loves me um, unconditionally. He doesn't need my stuff. And my works, you know, one final scripture that I have on my desk, First uh, John 2, 17, the wilderness desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So I just went deeper and deeper into my faith. That was really the key for me to recover my self-esteem. Warwick, we hope we're on the end of COVID, but uh, with the last couple of years, as it would be in the United States as well as here in Australia, so many businesses have suffered greatly and many of those have failed. Uh, a lot of people are uh, fighting their way back into a uh, position they were before, like pre-COVID. I wonder if you've got any encouragement for those who might be listening to our conversation today. They've gone through their own crucible experience as to how you begin to bounce back from those challenges. Yeah, Neil, it's an interesting question. Um in addition to my own story, we have our own uh, podcast, Beyond the Crucible. We've interviewed over 80 people who've suffered every kind of crucible you can imagine, men, women, uh, all races, backgrounds, from Navy SEAL paralyzed in a training accident to uh, victims of abuse, financial failure, people of faith, and other people. And the way back is all almost universally the same. It's when you go through a crucible, and for some listeners today, maybe they may feel it's their worst day. Uh, they may have lost a loved one or been fired or been a victim of abuse or physical tragedy. You can't always change the circumstances, but you, there's a choice to be made. Am I going to hide under the covers and be angry and bitter for the rest of my life, either at myself or others? Or am I going to say, okay, I'm going to, if it's because of my mistakes, am I going to learn the lessons of the crucible? If you know, maybe somebody else did something to me, I'm going to say, okay, how can I you know, uh, move on from this? How can I use my pain in service of others? Um, how can I learn to forgive, not to condone, but to forgive? So when you, be when you make a choice to live, really live and move on, obviously for a believer, lean ever deeper into your faith, because uh, certainly for me, Jesus has always provided that solace and counsel and wisdom and uh, you know, the scriptures provide a great source of counsel and wisdom. And then I guess to me, the the ultimate uh, key 
as we talk about leading a life of significance, a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others, for the believer, you might look at it and say, you know, what does it mean to live a kingdom life? Um, that's where I think joy and satisfaction lie, when you can use your pain to help others. It's certainly pretty healing. I've found that. So, But it ultimately starts with that first step, that choice. Am I going to give up? Am I going to reject my faith? Am I going to be angry and bitter for the rest of my life? Or am I going to choose to move on, choose to take at least one baby step uh, to you know, move back and find a sense of purpose? So that's really, that first step is key, just making that a choice. Warwick, let me just start this segment just asking you about, you said you went to Harvard Business School. Uh, does going along to a Harvard Business School help you deal with failure in the way that you've had to deal with it? What a good question. Uh, I'm not sure it does, and they teach you a lot about strategy, and it's it's a wonderful place. But, um, yeah, I mean, gosh, learning how to deal with uh, with failure, again, to me, for the believer, uh, you know, the Bible is the greatest source of how you deal with uh, failure because, you know, God loves us unconditionally. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. So it's it's really, with failure, the reason most people, uh, failure is never fun. Let's say you lose your job. Yes, there's an income issue, but often there's an identity issue. So if I fail, I'm a bad person. I'm a, you know, if I fail, I'm a failure. But in Christ, um, you know, we are loved unconditionally. We're never viewed as a failure. So I think separating your sense of worth from your job or how successful you are, you are or how great an athlete you are, that's really... That sense of identity is absolutely, absolutely crucial. And for the believer, we have a lot of resources there that we're loved just because we're human beings, not because of anything we do. So separate identity from self-worth is one of the biggest tools for overcoming uh, failure. Earlier, you said when you fail, you could stay down, but there is a choice to be made. Uh, when it comes to the choices, this identity that you're talking about, an identity we have in Christ, this is a strengthening identity. This is not a weakening identity. How do you describe who you discovering who you are and what that means for being able to get up again once you've been knocked down? You know, you know, it's easy to look at Scripture and go, oh, yeah, I, I kind of hear what it's saying. It's another thing, you know, um, faith actually means it changes the way you live. And so um, it's easy to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's great. But, and it's a journey, but, you know, it's um, it just, uh, you know, believing that Jesus was who he said he was and the sense that we are truly loved just because of who we are. And I think just for anybody in general, you've, um, you've kind of got to make that, make that choice that it's not about what others say about me. I am valued just because of who I am. And so that, that's a journey. Uh, it's not easy, but it um, is a choice that we, all, uh, that we all have to make. And that you know, really you know, comes down to what are your inner core beliefs? digging deep into that and living in light of those beliefs. That gives you a, this calm sense of tranquility and security. It's not about what other people say. It's about, you know, digging into your, your fundamental beliefs, which for me is my faith in Christ.
Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own comment uh, that you'd like to uh, put to our guest today. Let's take a call from Ben in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Hello, Ben. Welcome along. Oh, thank you so much. G'day, Neil, and g'day, Warwick. How are you going? Very well, Ben. What are your Very thoughts? Good, Oh, thanks so much for um, coming on the radio, Warwick, and sharing your story. It's very, very inspiring and encouraging. Um, I've just got a question. A few years ago, I read Paul Barry's biography of Kerry Packer, The Rise and Rise of Kerry Packer, and it gave a brief outline of um, the deterioration um, of the Fairfax family ownership um, of of the the newspaper empire. And it's kind of the, the way it's, told that story, it implied that your faith and your involvement in, in church life was part of the reason why it deteriorated. So I just wanted to, I suppose, find out your thoughts about that and whether that's accurate or not. We're in the deep end here, Ben. Thanks for that question. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts here, Warwick? Yeah, look, you know, my failures are my own. You know, I, I don't blame Jesus or church or faith. I mean, you know, I've... Uh, um, my faith is everything. I'm an elder at a you know two thousand person non denominational church in Maryland, so yeah, I'm you know a strong believer in, in in the church and all. No, I mean my uh, mistakes were my own, you know, youthful naivety, uh, making a lot of poor assumptions about you know other family members who want to be in a privatized company controlled by a twenty six year old. I mean, what rational person would agree to that? So, uh, I mean, it was. Uh, my mistakes on my own had nothing to do with, uh, with, 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 you know, faith. So, you know, it's, there's no way in the world I blame Jesus, God, church, uh, any blame is, it's purely, uh, it's purely me. Uh, yeah. So no, that's a lot of criticisms you can levy at me, which would be fair. That one, you can't blame Jesus or faith for, or church for, for that one. No, that was, it was all me. Ben in the Blue Mountains, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. In fact, building a little on on what uh, you're sharing there in response to Ben's question, Warwick, uh, you write in your book at length about the power of authenticity and vulnerability in leadership and uh, that comparison to, say, a Kerry Packer where there's an image of what the media baron uh, looks like. And uh, it's a tough image. It doesn't have the vulnerability and uh, the authenticity that we might be thinking. Any any thoughts here around the sort of mask that sometimes uh, business leaders, very successful business leaders, may be wearing because that image is something that attracts people to their leadership? Well, they think they do. Uh, they think it does. But yeah, I mean, because I grew up in, at least for Sydney folks in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and, you know, the, one of the wealthiest um, corners of Australia, uh, you know, I ha- we had people from Hollywood, prime ministers, ambassadors and business leaders and so many people just trying to impress, impress each other of how wonderful they were. And um, I just hated it. I just yearn for authentic, I uh, yearn for real, um, which it just wasn't real in some sense. So I feel like people that have to puff themselves up and convince everybody how wonderful they are are frankly deeply insecure. If you're really secure in yourself and secure in your faith in Christ, you don't need to impress anybody. 
mean, after all, the only person that ultimately matters is God, you know, and obviously you want your wife or husband and close family to respect you. I mean, that would be nice, but ultimately it's, you know, the only person's opinion is God. So I think it's easy to be, easier to be authentic if you realize my sense of self-worth depends on my inner values for the believer, depends on God loves me just because of who I am. And so being authentic is powerful. You know, we live in an age where young people especially, they yearn for the authentic. They're they're tired of the fake, you know, and frankly, you want to retain the best and the brightest. Uh, You you want to be authentic. And part of vulnerability is is just telling your team, you know, I don't have it all. You know, maybe you've got some uh, young manager who's managing a business unit for the first time, and maybe you'll say to him or her, you know, when I was your age, I had a small business unit under my control, and I've I failed spectacularly. It's a miracle I wasn't five, but my boss gave me a second chance. Well, that's vulnerability for a purpose. So, you know, people today, especially young people, they want vulnerable, they want authentic. Uh, they don't want the, you know, plastic smiles. It, it just doesn't work. And so the, the, the big business leaders who think it's a smart, it's a terrible business strategy. It makes no sense in terms of values. It makes even worse sense from a business strategy perspective. But it requires security, deep inner security, to be uh, to be vulnerable and to be authentic. So authenticity is not a weakness. Authenticity is a strength. And I suppose that if your competitors or even your enemies want to be a critic of you, uh, then they'll turn around what your strength is, and they'll try to make that sound like a weakness. But I guess when we're talking from a Christian ideal uh, and Christ-likeness, we see Jesus, the vulnerable, Jesus, the authentic, and uh, we would say that our our identity would be aligned with his identity. Is that a fair enough way of assessing that, Warwick, do you think? Absolutely. When your identity is in Christ, that's all the security you need. I mean, that's that is the ultimate security, and uh, people may try, but people are really drawn to the authentic, to the real. That's what they want. And so, frankly, in business, it's a competitive advantage, and it's a competitive advantage you'll find that's very difficult to copy, because how do you copy authenticity if you're deeply insecure? You're psychologically and emotionally incapable of it. So, you know, you could turn it around the other way, being authentic. It works, it makes good business sense, and your competitors probably won't be able to copy it because they're too insecure to be blunt. So, you know, I think it's a competitive advantage, not a weakness at all. Let's come back to how you bounce back when you've been through the crucible, uh, when you're going through that decade, which you describe the decade after losing the control of the Fairfax Empire as being the hardest years of your life. Bouncing back from that, uh, where do you rediscover some passion to be up on your feet and pursuing other business pursuits? Where do you discover that your purpose is not extinguished at this point? How do you describe those ways of getting back up on your feet? Yeah, I mean, for me, ultimately, it's, you know... uh I'm an executive coach, amongst other things, uh, International Coach Federation, executive coach. I believe everybody has a God-given right to choose their own path. But for me, it was my faith in Christ. You know, whatever your beliefs and values are, dig deep into that, and that's foundational. I think the other 
point I believe is that I don't believe God makes mistakes. If he designed you a certain way, live in light of that. So maybe, you know, you're good at um, maths or science or maybe uh, humanities, athletic, whatever that is, don't ignore that. And so live in, you know, be anchored in your beliefs, live in light of your design. And then you want to do something vocationally that you're passionate about. And for those that have been through gut-wrenching crucibles, which is a life-transforming time, very often you'll find a sense of calling that will come out of your worst days, out of your pain, as you use your pain to help others. You might be a cancer survivor, abuse survivor, whatever the crucible is, and by helping others, it, it gives purpose to life. So, you know, linking passion with your underlying purpose and with your design, that's a way to live a joyful and fulfilling life, which I think we all we all do. And in some sense, I would say it also helps fulfill a kingdom purpose. If you're using who God made you to be to serve others, then, you know, there's, a, I guess, a spiritual satisfaction too, if you will. Warwick, when you've gone through failure, and it's been very public, and there's been a huge loss, when you're trying to get back up on your feet, do you go back to the ruins and try and resurrect something from there, or do you pursue new beginnings in leadership in other areas, other disciplines, other businesses? Any thoughts here? Well, for me, uh, yeah, the last thing I wanted to do is go back to the to the ruins. I mean, it, it was so painful. I, you know, I had to leave Australia. I've, we go back every year or so, uh, typically. Uh, my kids have all spent, spent time in Australia. But, yeah, I felt like I had to leave the country. I couldn't live a normal life there because it was so public, which, you know, was pretty uh, gut-wrenching to have to do that. But, yeah, I mean, you've got to live your own life. And so... You know, it really depends. I think for many time, many people, if in, a, in a family business situation, it kind of depends. But for me, going back there, uh, you know, that wasn't my purpose. You know, I wasn't designed for that. You know, I had to move on to something else. So for others, you know, maybe finding purpose in that pain, you know, say cancer survivor or somebody who's had suffered physical injury. Yes, maybe you go back to it in a sense of using it to help others. I think it depends. But the key is you don't want to do it out of duty and obligation. You want to do it because you feel a calling and for the believer, a God-given calling to do it. You know, you don't want to do things out of guilt. That's never a good reason. Much of your book recounts stories involving some celebrated historical leaders and how they persevered through hardship and challenge. In some sense here, you align your own failures and your own uh, attempt to get back up on your feet with our others have done that. There's a lot of wisdom in the way many leaders have faced these sorts of things before. There is. You know, it's funny, a story I didn't have not mentioned yet is um, my own uh, ancestor, John Fairfax, my, my great-great-grandfather. He suffered challenge when he was young in his 20s and 30s back in uh, Leamington Spa in Warwickshire in England, hence, I guess, my name and my dad's name. And he read an article about a local lawyer and accused him of being corrupt. The lawyer sued him, and the judge found in John Fairfax's favor, saying, yep, your story was accurate. The lawyer was corrupt. But back then, everybody had to pay their own court costs. So he was found uh, righteous and justified by the law, and he was bankrupted. Completely unfair. You know, small business, things like that happen. 
Rather than be angry and bitter, he decided, well, maybe I need to move to a new country and move to Australia, which back then was a four to six month journey. It was a harrowing experience in the late 1830s. Uh, in fact, they lost a child on the way, uh, believe it or not, who was you know, sickly, uh, so not easy. But he didn't give up and ended up founding the Sydney Morning Herald. So that's a good example of don't let failure define you. He could have said, you know what, I'm never going to start another business. The world's corrupt. It'll never give you a fair shake. It'll never give you a fair go. What's the point? Life isn't fair. He could have been angry and bitter, but he did, but he did not let that um, unjust lawsuit by that lawyer destroy him. It's just a remarkable example of perseverance, forgiveness, and just not letting, not letting it destroy him. Let's take another call. Jonathan is in Perth, WA. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Yeah, hello, Neil. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Yes, uh, according to what the guy is saying, you have been listening to you for long. It is uh, be who you are. Don't don't be able to copy from other people what they are doing. If you are who you are, it will show in the community whether businessman or this and that. But when you are copying cat, you copying from other people, you manipulating. You want to show that you are good, but there's nothing good in you. You are deceiving many people. At the long run, those who that you are being deceiving, they will turn against you, and you will regret. Jonathan, good wise words there around authenticity. Uh, anything to add to that, Warwick? Boy, Jonathan really hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's so true. You know, you've got to be who you are. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be ashamed of it. Um, you know, if there are some people that don't like it, or well, maybe you don't want to hang out with those so-called friends or mates, you know, because maybe they're not really your friends. The people that truly admire you, well, admire, not admire, maybe the wrong word, people that like you, the real you, hang out with those folks. And you know, your family, friends, employees, co-workers, you know, we want to be around the real you. We have this myth that people won't like us if we're real. And, you know, it's sort of a message from the evil one, if you will. You know, certainly not a message from God. So have the courage to be you. And I think you, you'll really surprise yourself. People will say, well, finally, I was hoping we'd see the real you. And now we do. You know, thank goodness. You'll be, I think, amazed at the reaction. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for your call. Let's squeeze in one more call. James is in Kyabram in Victoria. Hi, James. Welcome. Hi, Neil. Hey, how are you today? Good, James. What's your thought or your question? Um, yeah, I've just uh, come across uh, situations or people who have been through things and they've ended up becoming uh, like fractured personalities. Um, just a slight, I can't say names, which I'm not going to disclose, but just one story of a young girl who was sent to Sunday school on a Sunday, but the parents were Satanists and if she come home from school, they would beat her if she said the name of Jesus. They locked her up against the wall or in chains above the ground and they, ta they tortured this young girl and another Christian lady took 17 years to try and disciple her and bring her out of uh, her circumstances and she found her release through art. She started to draw the pictures of things. It, it, it's a lot worse than what I'm sharing. I'm just, but I've come across that fractured person. It's been in my own family, not maybe more partial fracture of personality. They, they showed us a marble and it was all, it had been dropped and it was cracks all the way through it. People can be affected and split personalities, hiding behind couches um, and things like that. Real James, horror. you're making a really significant point here that when you are down and out, uh, when you feel as though you've lost, 
Uh, and uh, there's obviously a disruption to what happens in that personality, and there's major work in unravelling all of that. Uh, I wonder if there's a dimension here that Warwick might like to comment on, that when you are... Uh, when you are disrupted, the way that you actually uh, seek wholeness again, uh, some people seek it in different ways, but oftentimes there is an unravelling uh, to do there so that you can be whole. Uh, Warwick, your thoughts for James? Yeah, that's an interesting situation. You know, um, I think it depends. I mean, if there's been uh, abuse, or certainly here you've got some very unhealthy spiritual influences from my perspective, that person is going to need help. Uh, you know, it could be from psychologists, which for a person of faith, a Christian psychologist, I think it's helpful. Um, you know, it could be a spiritual counsel from your local church, um, depending on this, in this particular circumstance, it sounds like there's some real, some real issues, but yeah, you, you've got to kind of deal with that again. For me, from a person of faith, the ultimate healer, the ultimate uniter is Jesus, you know, uh, scriptures provide a sense of wholeness obviously it's both and you know people with with psychological issues you've got to get counseling getting counseling not a sign of weakness it's a sign of strength so you know again for the believer uh, you know biblical counseling um, psychological counseling depending on the situation but anchoring it in, in faith that's a way to sort of you know, unite to, you know, heal the fractures, but I don't minimize, it's not an easy situation, the kind of circumstances uh, that uh, yeah, we're talking about here. James, thank you so much for your call, and time is running out, Warwick. I wonder if we might touch on the fact that uh, these days you're grounded uh, very firmly in a local church there in your hometown in the United States, and uh, and you say that you've never been happier. So I wonder if you can just give us a, a little insight now, having gone through what you went through uh, with the family empire and uh, to where you are now leading crucible leadership and as an elder in your local church, uh, how do you feel today? I feel blessed. I feel absolutely blessed uh, to have Christ in my life, to have a wife who's a believer, you know, kids who are, uh, believers. Uh, in fact, my daughter, she spent two years uh, in Australia with Mission Australia, you know, very large uh, faith-based uh, non-profit um, working there. Uh, in Crucible Leadership, we have a great team. You know, I get to tell stories of how people bounce back from their worst day, and because I'm here to give people hope. And so being, creating a safe space and environment where people share those stories uh, not just mine, but other stories. You can recover from your worst day. You know, um, I'm not an ideologue. I'm very clear about my Christian faith that everybody has a right to choose their own path. So I just feel encouraged to be able to try and in some small way of give, give people hope. And there's not a day I don't go by that I don't go, thank you, Jesus. I mean, to have a loving wife who's never said, you know, who's never said a bad word to me in her whole life, who's never said, oh, I'd, you know, it was all your fault or whatever, to have a loving wife, you know, three wonderful kids, an incredible missional church that I'm uh, an elder of, to feel like I'm helping in some small way other people, you know, bounce back from their worst days. I'm, I'm just I'm filled with gratitude. I, I feel completely blessed. I'm so thankful. Warwick Fairfax, I know listeners will be able to feel uh, your heartbeat in all of the things you've been sharing over this past hour. 
uh, we do have to end our conversation, but uh, Warwick leads Crucible Leadership. He's written a book called Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. You can get it through online booksellers wherever you're listening around Australia, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Angus & Robertson. You might also want to access that podcast, Beyond the Crucible. There are 100 episodes. It's identified as one of the top 12 leadership podcasts in the world, and you'll find it on your favourite podcast platform. And, uh, of course, uh, wonderful getting those insights. We have run out of time, but uh, crucibleleadership.com is the website, and perhaps you can connect directly with Warwick uh, with a message through crucibleleadership.com. Warwick, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Well, thank you, Neil. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.